Hi, you're listening to the Fearless Futures podcast. I'm your host, Hannah Naima McCloskey, the CEO and founder of Fearless Futures. And this is the show where we unpack and interrogate mainstream methods for equity and inclusion. I'll be sharing new perspectives as well as alternative approaches we have developed and deployed working in daring companies across sectors around the world. Each week, we will explore a new angle you won't want to miss. So stick around. In this episode, I'll be sharing answers to questions we've received from listeners of this podcast series. As we released earlier episodes, lots of people got in touch to ask questions that had come up for them. Realising there was probably a lot going on for folks, we also opened up the opportunity to ask any questions in our newsletter. Over the course of this episode, I'll be offering the answers to a select set of questions that we received. Enjoy! In this episode, I'll be answering the following question. What about political diversity? Now, to respond to this and to provide an answer, I think it's best that we start with the word diversity. Now, diversity does mean a mix of different things typically brought together at its kind of most simplest. And while that's often what it's taken to mean at face value when we're thinking about diversity and inclusion, you know, bringing different people together, you'll probably have noticed from previous episodes when we at Fearless Futures are thinking about the term diversity, we're not just saying any difference can be brought together or should be, um, or that we should invest in bringing that together. Instead, we're using the term to mean that we should be bringing together those who have been historically marginalized. So the diversity, we're not really that keen on the term, to be honest, but if we were to use it, it would be about kind of honoring the diversity that is possible on the planet and that does exist on earth and has done since, you know, since the beginning of time, but with a focus on those who have been historically marginalized um, and who are the subjects of oppressive systems. So diversity in that sense is it has a very specific angle and direction. And ultimately, this understanding of diversity, if we were to use it, and we do, also necessitates a power analysis, you know, to look at who has been disenfranchised by systems of power and and therefore focusing our efforts on challenging, interrupting that dynamic in our pursuit of diversity. Because without pursuing that diversity, what we're left with, of course, is that those who are the beneficiaries or the positive targets of systems of oppression are the default people. And so you might have a mix of those um, identities. It's a mix that of those who do not experience oppression and who are those beneficiaries of oppression. So you might have a mix of people who are white and non-disabled and heterosexual. That is diversity, but it's not uh, challenging or interrupting the oppression that we would argue this work should engage with. Now, if we don't have this definition of diversity, we can end up sort of down the rabbit hole thinking that any differences that may exist among any kind of group of people um, are by definition dealing with challenging that disenfranchisement and and the and the exclusion that we see being the product of oppressive systems. And if we have this idea that just any difference is the goal, um, then we could actually 
end up in a world where the status quo very much remains the same. So we could look at any sort of axes of difference and, you know, conclude that, well, Bob loves the Beatles and Sally hates them but loves the Supremes and Joe loves Bob Marley. Da-da, we're done, you know, and, and we could still not have dealt with these underlying systems of oppression that prevent certain groups from being present in our workplaces. So just having lots of people who are different, because there are differences even among white people or non-disabled people, would not resolve the concentration of power that we should be concerned with. And, and therefore, we wouldn't be getting anywhere unless we have this very specific lens. So therefore, in order to consider whether a certain group or a certain issue should be the subject of our diversity efforts, we first need to establish whether they are the subject of a system of oppression, right? And then that's our key criteria. That has to be our starting point as to whether or not we engage in work, therefore, to target and challenge that that consequence. So therefore, to turn to this question of political diversity, in order for that to be the subject of our resources, of our energy, of our thinking, um, we would first need to establish whether oppression exists on the basis of political party affiliation, say in the USA or in Europe or the country in which we're operating. And in conclusion, it political affiliation of a political party does not meet our criteria for a system of oppression. And to kind of remind you on what that involves, our first episode is what is a system of oppression? And I'd probably suggest that it's a great place to kind of keep revisiting in order to kind of strengthen our collective muscles of being able to analyse and diagnose whether something meets that criteria or not. So we could stop there and we could just say, as you know, I think would be fairly sensible, well, political party affiliation does not meet the criteria of oppression, therefore it doesn't merit the energy required to pursue diversity in relation to it, because there is not a political party that is subject to the historical process that exists as a continuum into the present, shaping and organising society. But what we do know is that sometimes political diversity comes up in organisational contexts, and there can be a thinking that it should be something to pursue an agenda worthwhile engaging one's resources and energy to kind of tackle. And I would say that we've seen this most commonly in the USA, especially in Silicon Valley and in the world of tech and social media, where, and, you know, this has been widely um, reported in the media. Um, You know, there have been op-ed pieces written about this question. And it's, you know, in some of these cases of the of companies that have been the subject of newspaper articles, it's been whether or not they are too Democrat, for example. And I think when I've been sort of pondering, you know, the response to the kind of listener that shared this question and kind of thinking about the wider context where I've seen this play out the most and kind of be featured in our mainstream thinking, I think that at its core, this question of political diversity is actually striving for an idea of balance or neutrality really thinking that well if we can have the same number of democrats as republicans then we will be neutral for example now i think the first thing to kind of engage with if that is what's going on is that there is no neutrality and additionally 
working towards inclusion and equity is not a neutral process. It is an angle. It is an agenda. It is a direction and purpose and is necessary. And people need to apply their energy from one area into another in order to get to that end destination. It is about movement towards something. It is about building. And therefore, it is not neutral. And so we can't therefore seek to both have neutrality if this if what I'm kind of reading into a desire for political diversity is kind of speaking to, as well as have a commitment to inclusion and equity because because we know that the latter requires a direction. It requires taking it requires taking a stand. Um, it requires uh, mobilizing energy and resource, none of which are kind of neutral. They are about prioritizing, they're about making choices. Again, not neutral processes. And so to take that to the kind of dimension of political diversity, it therefore doesn't really make a huge amount of sense. You know, it wouldn't be in service of equity if we decided that to truly be diverse um, for each person who believed um, in universal health care, we had an equal number of people in our organisation who were committed to eugenics being a position that ultimately devalues the lives of people made poor, disabled people and people of colour, as it ultimately sees the forced sterilisation of such groups and has done when it's been deployed through history, as eugenics ultimately means, kind of at its root, means born well. And so it sees certain groups of people as less than others and therefore enacts the deliberate erasure of those groups. This position, that of eugenics, is obviously not in line with equity principles. Additionally, positioning Democrats and Republicans, for example, in the United States or the Labour Party and the Conservative Party as opposites in all regards actually erases the ways that systems of oppression inform and infuse and work through all political parties because political parties are just as you know much a part of society as anyone or as anything so you know i can think of policies that are shared in the uk for example um between labor and the conservatives prevent for example which i've spoken about in previous episodes was the brainchild of the Labour Party in the early 21st century. And it has been continued by the Conservative government when they have been in power. So there are many areas of policy that are actually shared, overlap, as political paradigms shift and as certain things that perhaps were on the fringe of political discourse become central and become part of the mainstream there's a huge amount of flux therefore in how political parties articulate themselves the ideas that they're committed to and the policy positions that are part of their platform to give an example in the american context i could share the ways in which immigration policy has been articulated and narrated by political parties is consistent. There's a consistency between the Democrats and the Republicans 
thinking about the work of Harsha Walia, her brilliant book, Border and Rule, which I highly recommend, or if you're looking for a shorter version, I'll post a link to a podcast episode on The Intercept that she has done recently, clearly delineates the connections between the Democrats and the Republicans when it comes to immigration policy. Going all the way back, for example, most recently to you know the Clinton administration, the State of the Union address in 1995 spoke about aggressively securing the borders, about how there were going to be new border guards, about the kind of the pride in deporting twice as many aliens, to use the language of President Clinton at that time. And that, you know, is a consistent theme within mainstream politics, this need to kind of expunge migrant people from the United States. Of course, those ideas are rooted in colonial and racist logics about certain people uh, removing the rights of certain people to move. Movement across the world, of course, has been um, happening for millennia. And of course, it raises the fact that some people, white people, rich white people, are able to move around the world wherever they want without any limitation um, corporations are also able to move around the world wherever they want in order to secure the labour that they require for their profits. So there's an asymmetrical immobilization of certain groups of people, but the free movement of capital, as well as certain groups of people, those white rich people that I've mentioned before. But to go back to, you know, looking at this thread, we see that this, you know, the State of the Union uh, for President Clinton in 1995. We then see that, you know, Obama spent $18 billion in 2012. The, the budget, he didn't spend it personally, the budget uh, for ICE or ICE, um, the kind of immigration control uh, agency in the United States was $18 billion and was, you know, larger than the combined federal law enforcement agencies um, of all the others combined, that was where Obama was spending taxpaying money. And then, of course, we have the Trump administration as the most kind of recent articulation where, you know, those on the left, liberals, so-called progressives have, you know, thrown their hands up and kind of, you know, been dis very disgusted, uh, shall we say, by certain um, actions of the Trump administration, but perhaps without seeing those historical continuities. As I said, harking back to the ways Obama also was in favour of a militarised border, also the way we saw that with the Clinton administration. And then it's also no surprise, therefore, that despite Joe Biden sort of proudly vowing to reverse Trump's immigration policy, you know, photos have emerged of children in detention in cages in the United States under his watch. And so we have to ultimately reckon with the fact that political parties, by and large, in the mainstream, reproduce the very narratives that we know are central to oppressive systems because they are part of these systems as we all are. And to distinguish between political parties and to see very hard and fast uh, differences on core themes that we know, such as immigration, are mobilised and are tools and are enablers themselves of racist ideas, for example, and racist discourse um, 
and therefore racist policy as a follow-on, without seeing that we're sort of in a, in a little bit of a delusion. You know, something I always think of as um, very kind of interesting when we're thinking about, you know, that flux that we see for political parties is that, you know, until 1966, the official logo of the Alabama Democratic Party featured a crowing rooster and a banner reading white supremacy and and I think you know there are there are perhaps many people that identify their kind of liberalness and their progressiveness with the Democrats but of course that history has not been um, consistent through time um, and is is subject and was subject to change. And so, again, just to kind of reiterate this point, we don't see the uh, criteria of, a, of an oppression being met out um, precisely because we, ha- we see huge shifts in the ways in which political parties engage themselves and engage their publics. But we also see that political parties are themselves tools and reproducers of systems of oppression via their policy platform. So they themselves cannot disentangle themselves from the ways in which um, they reproduce oppressions, um, whether that's, you know, being disabled, whether that's being racist, whether that's engaging in, you know, transphobic discourse, whatever it might be, political parties play into that very clearly at times, notwithstanding all of the kind of conceptual points that I've shared up until now, there are some very practical matters here when it comes to political diversity. The first of which is that I believe, and I think it's a kind of principle widely held, that everybody has a right to anonymity when it comes to who they vote for. Now, of course, some people choose to share that information, but That being said, they also have a right to anonymity when it comes, um, you know, when the rubber hits the road, when they're in the ballot box. And so there's, of course, a tension there with that right to anonymity and an organisation seeking to prioritise political diversity and that meaning the political party affiliation that people have. So at a practical matter, I don't think it's reasonable and I think it would contravene a really important right to anonymity. Additionally, of course, there's the very important point that people change their political position and their political party affiliation and who they choose to vote for at, you know, local elections, general elections or federal elections versus state elections, you know, what have you people change their minds. And that's, of course, why political parties campaign and, you know, go door knocking in order to change people's minds. So again, coming back to that flux point, people who are voting have a right to change their mind from one day to the next as to what policies are a priority for them. And of course, individuals are quite complex when it comes to who they vote for um, and so on. Again, challenging this idea, it would even be possible to pursue such a goal as political diversity. And then finally, of course, I think, you know, this wouldn't even be possible because of 
people's you know right to freedom of expression for the activities they do outside um so long as it's within you know the bounds of the law and so on the law as it's kind of currently constructed and i think therefore that freedom of expression that freedom to agitate and that freedom to dissent is of course one that would quite easily be seen to be um thwarted were such policies to be put in place in the workplace now to my to the best of my knowledge and the research that i've done political party affiliation isn't a protected characteristic in the uk nor at a federal level in the us though i do understand it's on within some states um legislation does exist however i i don't think it would be in in keeping with people's right to anonymity for such for a private company's policy position to engage in the process of sort of filtering out one set of people's beliefs. I don't even know how you'd get that information versus trying to attract those with other political party beliefs, for example. So all everything I've said prior to that, I think, stands. And to conclude, as a practical matter, it's simply not achievable and not desirable to engage in kind of resource use, energy use at a company level to pursue this um, stated goal. Thank you for listening to the Fearless Futures podcast. If you like what you hear, be sure to subscribe, rate and share this episode with a friend. If you're interested in learning more about the work that we do at Fearless Futures, please visit our website, fearlessfutures.org. Till next time.